Darkcast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Hello, listeners. We're so very happy you could join us here at Darkcast Network for our holiday stories. The first part of our holiday special focuses on those who have been on the naughty list, some of them for many years. Are you wrapped in your favorite blankie and have your comfort snacks nearby? I certainly hope so. On with the show. Hi there, and happy holidays, everyone. My name is Raven, and I'm the host for Rogue Darkness, the podcast that uncovers how the misinterpretations and misinformation surrounding witchcraft, the occult, and other beliefs have led many to do unthinkable crimes. From ritualistic killings and the demons that live in all of us, to exploration of the macabre and delving deep into the unknown, let's explore the darkness of mankind, one crime at a time. In honor of the Yuletide season, I wanted to tell you a tale of German folklore originating in the Palatinate region of Europe, and which has since migrated to the States, having a current place in Pennsylvania lore. This is the tale of the sometimes endearing, but also many times terrifying companion of St. Nicholas, a character known as Belschnickel. Belschnickel is said to be often adorned with animal fur, rather dirty and even severed clothes, and he will sometimes even make his appearance while wearing deer antlers atop his head. His appearance is actually where his name itself came to be. The German word Bels translates to fur, and Nickel refers to St. Nicholas. His name also changes based on who is telling the tale. Sometimes people refer to him as Chris Kinkle, Beltsnickel, Pelsnickel, and sometimes even as the Christmas woman, when he appears to children while dressed in women's clothing. Much like the children's beloved St. Nicholas, who would bring treats to those who were good throughout the year, Belsnickel too keeps track of children's behavior throughout the year, choosing whether the children he visits deserve holiday treats, or if they'd rather be disciplined for their naughty behavior. Belsnickel is said to arrive at children's homes two weeks before Christmas, carrying a switch in his hand for the naughty girls and boys, while stowing lots of cakes, candies, and nuts in his pockets for the well-behaved and nice children. Upon his arrival, the children are asked to answer some questions for him, or to sometimes even sing him a song. In exchange for their responses or singing, Belschnickel will then throw some cakes, candies, and nuts onto the floor, a means of testing how the children will react. If the children immediately jump at the treats, the Belschnickel will uncover his switch and threaten to swat their hands or back with it. But the children who proved they were good all year and respected the Belschnickel are rewarded with the treats that he had brought with him. The tale of the Belschnickel has long since served as a reminder to young children that it's never too late to stay out of mischief, especially before Christmas, since he arrives two weeks prior. It's a tale to help children to remember to think twice before they misbehave. If you enjoyed this legendary tale of Germanic lore, you'd probably also like my holiday episode from last year where I covered the legend of the Christmas Scarecrow. It's an eerie tale that actually has roots based on real historical events and individuals, so definitely go give it a listen. And for even more eerie episodes involving everything from lore and possible demonic possessions to ritualistic sacrifices and cult persuasion, definitely check out Rogue Darkness wherever you listen to podcasts. Ho, 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 ghoul fiends! Tis I, Santa Ash! 
<laughs> just playing, y'all. It's just Ash. I know, though. I was convincing, huh? Well, in case you're new around here, I host Creepy Tapas with my best friend, Jordan. We love being on the Darkcast Network, where we share our tiny tastes of terror with y'all every week. We dive into some crazy topics like vampires, murderous clowns, demonic possessions, and more, exploring the reality behind the fiction, as well as movies and books that are inspired by the true-life terrors. We wrap up every topic with a terrifying true crime case, all centered around our weekly theme. Today, we have a very special task. Behold, the naughty list. Killer kids on film and in reality. Everyone we talk about today deserves coal for Christmas. Not even the foil-wrapped, like, crunchy chocolate kind, just the regular kind. Blech. You saw when you were sleeping, what happened when you were awake. He knows where all the bodies are hid, so your soul is his to take. <laughs> nice. Well, hey, y'all, I'm Ash. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to get into... The, the Naughty, Naughty List. Kids are creepy. They do and say creepy stuff all the time, y'all. Mostly innocent, sometimes insidious. We rely on Santa and his universal naughty list symbol, a solitary lump of coal, to tell us what kids we should keep a watchful eye on. Were you ever shocked that Santa brought you a present because you were such an insufferable little all year? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> He's really forgiving. I think there are some kids who kind of qualify as forever naughty, though. Yeah, I think so, too. Like, no matter how hard they try, they'll never, ever see another gift from old Saint Nick ever again. Some of the children we talk about today committed crimes when they were, like, eight years old. Do they, do they give them a little Santa Claus at, at the institution? I wonder if Santa visits the psychiatric ward. I'm not sure. Are you listening from a psychiatric ward? <laughs> no. Write us. No. Creepytapas. No. At gmail.com. No. Yes. No. Hmm. March 22nd, 2016. Three first graders at a charter school in Anchorage, Alaska, were enjoying their lunch like any other day together. The group sat and enjoyed a dried seaweed snack. Gross. Mm, but this was no ordinary seaweed. This unassuming snack was unwittingly being groomed to become an accessory to Moida. <laughs> what? The students put their plan into action, and the first graders were ready. But then, suddenly, the school resource officer approached, separating the trio of deadly murderers, and began questioning. It was not long until the girls broke, admitting to their foul plans, which were now ruined. Parents were notified, a letter was sent out to everyone, and the girls would cement their place on Santa's forever naughty list. The letter sent home to all parents praised two students who came forward, bringing the plot to the attention of the grown-ups. It said the students were planning on using the silica gel packets from their lunchtime seaweed to poison and kill another student which were not actually poisoned, but the students believed that they were. It went on to confirm the accusations, citing the girls' confessions to both the principal and the resource officer. An investigation was conducted, which corroborated the story as well. My first reaction was definitely shocked, said one father in an interview with KTUU in Anchorage. I just couldn't believe that some children, as young as they were, first grade, could come up with something like that. Silica gel usually comes in the form of round balls in a paper or cloth packet, which are commonly used to maintain freshness in the packaging of food or clothing. You've probably seen them before. They say, do not eat all over them, which is, I guess, why the kids assumed it would be lethal. All right. You know? Yeah. I think it's more of a choking hazard. Well, according to the Illinois Poison Center, Silica gel is chemically inert and is considered to be non-toxic. 
The concern with silica packets is their size, which can become a choking hazard of swallowing. Hey, that's what I said. It is what she said. Okay. Look at you. Look, Look at me at being smart. I know. Police have investigated the incident, but said no charges would be laid, leaving punishment up to the school instead. Well, Santa's a pretty forgiving guy, I think. They, they, they probably earned at least 25, 25 years on the naughty list, I think. You're getting cool. I mean, I would say a couple, but maybe not yeah. forever. It's pretty bad. It's a pretty bad one. Well, they didn't actually go through with it. And it wouldn't have actually poisoned anybody. It wouldn't have worked. It, <laughs> I feel like some people would have some plastic balls in their belly. <laughs> like, it would oh, probably no. just poop out. Yeah. Anna Brackett, 85 years old, opened her door on June 14th, 1983, and she saw two pleasant teenage girls. They were panicked. They told her that strange men were chasing them and they had to come inside to use the phone to call emergency. Brackett, a retired seamstress and great-grandmother, was waiting for a visit from her son, Carl, who was going to pick her up around 6 p.m. to take her to a bingo game. As he was driving toward his mom's house, he passed these two teenage girls that looked like they were hitchhiking on the road. He just thought to himself, silly kids, whatever, you know. When Carl arrived at his mother's house, he noticed an unsettling amount of quiet. When he entered, he found his mother's body on the living room floor, along with at least 28 stab wounds, one four inches deep. An autopsy would later show that she'd been beaten and strangled as well. Police that were investigating in the neighborhood found out that two teenage girls had been knocking on doors in the community earlier that day. There was another woman who allowed them inside, and she gave them water, she let them use the phone, but then the girls left because her husband came in the room, so they just took off. Uh, the lady would later tell the police that the girls were so creepy that she actually washed the glasses and wiped the phone receiver with alcohol. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> because they, she was so unsettled by them. She just needed to clean them off of everything. Yeah, which kind of sucks because she, you know, yeah. ruined some evidence. But it wasn't hard for the cops to figure out what was going on. The girls were locals. Cindy was from Auburn and Shirley was from Placerville, 28 miles away. Witnesses soon matched faces to names. Less than 12 hours after Anna's murder, detectives were knocking on the door of Cindy's house, where she lived with her mother and brother. The two of them were actually sleeping in Cindy's basement when police woke them up for questioning. Can you imagine? Nope. Being woke up by the cops. We're just having That'd a slumber terrifying. party. Don't mind us. We were just sleeping. Shirley confessed to everything. We did it. We killed her. They said they were scoring Anna's neighborhood for a car that they wanted to run away in. Anna's 1970 Dodge caught their attention. They decided they wanted to steal it. Saw she was an old lady. Perfect car. Shirley said. Just a setup. We figured we'd kill her. Scumbags. Right? Shirley Catherine Wolf, 14 years old, scrolled in a ledger containing her most private thoughts. Today, Cindy and I ran away and killed an old lady. It was a lot of fun. Anna, unfortunately, let them in, offered them nice cold drinks, had a conversation with them, got to know them for over an hour. These girls sat with her and enjoyed her hospitality before they decided to get down to business and do what they were really there for. Then I stabbed and stabbed. I stabbed her in the neck because if she lived, she would know who we were and report us, Shirley said. Anna begged her to stop. She told them that she was dying. And I turned and I go. Good, Shirley claimed. Well, both girls appeared to actually revel in the cold-blooded murder of this kind old woman. We were going out to celebrate the fact that we killed someone just for fun. Cindy was quoted saying, They seemed like sisters, or at least old friends, but in reality, get this, they had met eight hours before the murder. Yeah. What? Yep. 
they shared this crazy blind rage. They both had really, really, really bad childhoods. You know, uh, sometimes I guess people find community in their pain. You know, in the short time they got to know each other, obviously that was the topic. That's how they uh, connected. Almost immediately, they started knocking on doors. Yeah. So in 1983, these two were found guilty of first-degree murder and burglary. It was a non-jury trial, and the judge took 15 minutes to make his decision. That's it. Well, yeah, you know, kind of blatantly said they did it. Totally. (laughs) Well, and and like happily, gleefully admitted to things. Kind of proud of it. Cindy and Shirley received the same sentence, eight years in a juvenile detention facility. Both had time added for bad behavior. Uh Uh-huh. Shame. (laughs) Yep. After studying law in prison, Cindy was released in 1992. She married, had four children, and has lived quietly ever since. Released in 1995... Shirley continued to have trouble with the law for a time and then dropped completely off the radar. So what do you think? Forever naughty list? Yeah, probably. Yeah, you don't think Santa Claus has forgiven that? That was pretty bold. That was bold. That was very bold. And they were proud of it. They were. Jonathan George Timpson was born in an isolated Cree Indian community on December 30th, 1987. He was playful and outgoing. He had a winsome smile and a couple of missing front teeth. His hero was Zorro. He was a lot like other little boys where he had a favorite superhero. On July 8th, Charles and an unnamed eight-year-old accomplice lured little tiny Jonathan into a bush near his home on the pretext of playing a game where Jonathan had to go find a ball. Charles then leapt onto the sweet and unsuspecting child, stabbing him at least four times in the throat, body, and face with his mother's paring knife. He only paused when the knife became lodged in Jonathan's eye. He then used a beer bottle and a 12-pound rock, which administered the deadly blow, crushing Jonathan's skull. Then, apparently mimicking a ritual he saw in the 1991 movie Warlock, Charles tore 15 strips off Jonathan's body using another one of his mother's kitchen knives. Oh my god. Prosecutor Ritter told the judge that Charles then returned home, put the strips in a soup can covered with foil, put the can on the stove, and cooked the flesh to reduce the fat to liquid. The idea was, if you cut the fat off of a virgin, unbaptized child, then boiled it down and drank it, that it would give you the power to fly. Three days after his death, Jonathan's butchered body was discovered in the woods by his cousin, who was part of a search party formed by local townsfolk. Charles was arrested two days later. After his arrest, Charles told the police that he was in the thrall of spirits when he committed the murder. I started to think about killing. Something wanted me to. Defense lawyer Barry Singer said that Charles had been deeply affected by the movie Warlock, which he viewed at least ten times in the days leading up to the murder. Like the title character in the movie, Singer said that Charles believed he would become a son of the devil and be able to fly if he drank the boiled fat of an unbaptized male child. Singer also called psychiatric experts who testified that Charles was suffering from a serious mental disorder and that he had lost touch with reality when he ended Jonathan's life. Prosecutor Robin Ritter suggested that Charles could tell right from wrong and noted that he and his eight-year-old accomplice, which I can't believe that an eight-year-old helped him. Yeah, I know. That's wild. So the eight-year-old would not be charged because of his age, and he now lives in a foster home. They decided to kill a kid 10 days before the murder, and they actually pre-selected Jonathan as their victim. It wasn't even like it was random. No, they straight up chose him. An eight-year-old and a 12-year-old for 10 days. Like, it just, wow. That's just wild. The prosecutor also said that Charles had told youth jail staff that he'd hoped to be declared insane, so he would be sent to a psychiatric hospital, and that way he would only have to spend two years behind bars. Oh, God. 
And he was just like, oh, yeah. It'll be fine. I'll, I'll just plea insanity. It'll I'll just go fine. away for a couple of years. Well, he unfortunately did get his wish, and he was found not guilty for reasons of insanity. He's serving out his sentence, which... I actually can't find the length of, but I know that he's in a psychiatric hospital. Well, as for the children who knew Jonathan Timpson, the loss was painful and troubling. When we think about this, we're just crying all the time. Said Jaya Ramaya, assistant director at the daycare cooperative where Jonathan had been taken daily by his mom. Mental health experts urged the children to write short notes to Jonathan and slip them into helium balloons that ascended into the heavens. Many wrote, We love you, Jonathan. Miss Ramaya recalled, It rained, and so children noted that Jonathan's tears were falling. A Cree Indian funeral service was held for Jonathan, and he was buried in a tribal cemetery. Jonathan was just a perfect little angel. He was very quiet and well-behaved. A tragedy like this should never be allowed to happen anywhere in the world, said Miss J.D. Lloyd, who runs a daycare center for children. A tragic. I think, regardless of what a judge decided, he is absolutely naughty listed forever and ever. Forever. <laughs> what did you think, ghoul fiends? <laughs> you can find Creepy Tapas and indulge in our insanity once a week. We upload every Sunday, and we're available wherever you hear your podcasts. Thanks for listening, y'all. Stay creepy. Hi, my spooky friends. My name is Brenda, and I'm the host of the podcast Horrifying History. On our show, we tell you all the dark tales that stain the pages of history. Christmas will soon be here, and this is the time of year we hear stories about love and family. But that is not the type of story that I'll be telling you all today. Killers Dressed Up as Santa Claus has been used by the entertainment industry since the early 1970s, but the story I will tell you is a true story about one of the first individuals who decided to turn Santa into a killer. On December 24, 2008, a party was in full swing inside a home in the Californian town of Covinia. At 11.30 p.m. that night, the young children inside the home were excited to hear the doorbell ring. They started to gleefully call Santa's name as an eight-year-old girl opened the door. But behind that door was no normal Santa. This Santa was carrying a large wrapped gift in one hand, and as the girl went to give him a hug, he pulled out two handguns out of his Santa pants and shot that girl in the face. This Santa was not there to spread any sort of holiday cheer. He immediately started to shoot his weapons into the group of over 20 party guests, since he was actually there to get his revenge against his former in-laws, his ex-wife, and anyone who would get in his way. As panic and fear flowed through the party goers, one person quickly realized who this Santa actually was. Bruce Pardo. 45-year-old Bruce was the recently divorced ex-husband of the homeowner's daughter Sylvia. There was not one single drop of love or goodness in his soul as Bruce shot indiscriminately at members of Sylvia's family as his very own niece lay near death in the doorway. Bruce would take nine lives that night in what was later called the Santa shooting spree. In the days after the massacre, people started to talk about why they thought this could have happened. Some said that Bruce and Sylvia's marriage fell apart after Sylvia found out that Bruce had a secret child of disability that he cut all ties with. Others just didn't want to believe that Bruce could do anything wrong. After all, he was a regular churchgoer who would check in on his neighbors to see how they were doing. How could such a good and religious man do something like this? Well, the answer is quite simple. Bruce wasn't a good man. 
Survivors of this massacre reported that Bruce would stand over each of his victims to execute them at close range. As survivors ran from the scene, leaving the bodies of the dead behind, Bruce decided to unwrap the gift he brought with him. Inside was a homemade flamethrower on a trolley. It was here that he set the house on fire with a little help from 18 gallons of gasoline. It took about two hours to put out the fire, but believe it or not, the eight-year-old girl survived with another young child that Bruce had shot in the back. Now that the home was ablaze, Bruce had a problem. As he was surrounded with the now burning bodies of those he killed, his cheap Santa costume started to melt. It stuck to his skin as he tried to take it off. He changed into street clothes before he ran away from this death scene. Now, when Bruce was planning his murder spree, he did plan his getaway. He bought a plane ticket to escape to Canada, but due to the severity of his burns, he pivoted from this plan. Bruce decided to drive 30 miles or 48.2 kilometers to his brother's house. His brother was not home, and this is when Bruce decided to take his weapon and end his own life. Police later found his body, which had $17,000 strapped to his leg. They also found his car in the street by his brother's house. It was booby-trapped to explode if someone tried to remove the remains of his Santa suit from his car. After the police searched Bruce's property, they found multiple handguns, shotguns, a high-octane fuel tank, and bomb-making items. So, why did he do all of this? Why did Bruce dress up as Santa Claus with the goal to kill everyone in Sylvia's family? Well, we'll never know for sure, but some believe that after Sylvia divorced Bruce, he became obsessed in making her pay for the hurt he felt. He started his evil plotting, and he decided that he wasn't just going to take her. He was going to use this as an opportunity to wipe anyone she'd loved off the face of the earth. Instead of using this holiday to celebrate and show people that he loved them, Bruce decided to take this holiday to introduce his evil onto our world. We at Horrifying History wanted to tell you this tale for a reason. The Christmas season is supposed to be a time of happiness and love, not hate. It is a time to appreciate all of those who are in your life and fill your life with good tidings and joy. From the Horrifying History family to yours, may the magic of the holiday season fill your heart with joy, peace, and love. You can find Horrifying History wherever you find your favorite podcasts. You also can find us on Facebook as Horrifying History, on Instagram as Horrifying underscore History, and on Twitter at Horrifying H-I-S-T-1. Hello, I'm Ashley, the host of Fuck That, a true crime podcast, and today I'm going to share the story of a figure that encompasses the spirit of Christmas. As winter approaches and the days become shorter, there is a cheer that fills the crisp air. The spirit of the holidays is growing as families get ready to spend Christmas with the ones that they love the most. Children are always on their best behavior this time of year, eager to ensure a top spot on Santa's nice list guaranteeing they get wonderful presents instead of a large lump of coal. Children in Central Europe look forward to St. Nicholas's arrival once before Christmas, on the eve of St. Nicholas Day, which occurs on December 6th. The night before, children carefully place a shoe in front of the fireplace or their front door, eager to wake up to it filled with small gifts and candy from St. Nicholas himself. However, The eve of St. Nicholas Day is not all that it seems. In fact, 
Once the sun sets on December 5th and the sky falls black, Krampus knocked or Krampus night begins. Late at night, while tucked cozily into their beds, young children may hear the tiptoe of Santa on their roof as he prepares to bring the children joy. But some children may hear something far more menacing, the sounds of Krampus, St. Nick's devilish companion. Krampus, son of hell, the Norse god of the underworld, roots back to pre-Germanic paganism during the winter solstice. Half goat, half devilish man, Krampus is the antithesis of St. Nicholas and Christmas cheer. Naughty young children awaken to the sound of Krampus's cloven hooves tapping, filling the once peacefully silent night with terror. The lucky ones will awaken, only to find that Krampus has taken away the small gifts that St. Nicholas had left. The unlucky children, however, will come face to face with a monster beyond their wildest little imaginations. As Krampus slowly makes his way up to their beds, children are paralyzed with fear as they gaze upon the nightmare that has come to punish them. Krampus, seven feet tall, is covered in dark, mangled fur. His body wrapped in chains and a sack is neatly draped across his shoulder. The sack makes it easier to bring the children with him back to hell. Atop his head sits long, gnarly pointed horns with large, bulging eyes nestled menacingly below. Gripped tightly in his clawed hand is a bundle of birch rods that he uses to dole out one of his many forms of punishment. As Krampus gazes upon naughty children, he lets out a wide smile, revealing his long and pointed tongue, salivating at the thought of consuming naughty children for his dinner. That is just one of the many fates that the unfortunate may face when they encounter Krampus. Some naughty children get away with a mere beating from Krampus's birch rods. Others, Krampus takes down to the river to drown. And while many would consider those children that Krampus feasts upon as unlucky, there are some that Krampus selects to bring back with him to the depths of hell for eternity. The terrifying story of the antithesis to St. Nicholas originated in folklore as early as the 1600s. Over time, Krampus evolved into a cloven demon and was incorporated into Christian winter celebrations. While Krampus represented the menacing side of the holidays, homes across Europe and eventually the United States began to embrace him lovingly. Krampus has become an integral part of the holiday spirit in many European countries. From Krampus Karten, Krampus-themed Christmas cards filled with rhymes and poems, to Krampus Love. Krampus runs where adults dress up as Krampus and run through the towns. The spirit of Krampus is very much alive, maybe more than the spirit of St. Nicholas. So, before you tuck your little ones into bed, remember, St. Nicholas doesn't come until it's dark out. Make sure children are safe and sound. One can never be sure if Krampus is lurking in the shadows or not, waiting to drag the children to hell. Hey, hey, it's me, Autumn, from Autumn's Oddity, part of the Dark Cast Network, and I am bringing you a good old-fashioned Christmas witch today. You know, there's no finer tradition, really. Well, those who prefer the darker side of the holiday season have had it pretty good lately, myself included, thanks to the growing popularity of Krampus. Once a mythological character on the fringes of Christmas lore, the horned Germanic monster has gone mainstream. There are Krampus parades in major cities, an influx of merchandise with his little horns and long-tongued creepiness, and even a horror movie about him tormenting a terrible family. 
While Krampus may be king of holiday scares, his fans often overlook an equally nasty and formidable queen, a Christmas monster who lives further north in the frigid climes of Iceland, who goes by the name Gryla, the Christmas witch. This ogress, as she is described, lives in a cave in Iceland's hinterlands, the matriarch of a family of strange creatures, launching attacks on nearby townships, snatching up misbehaving children, and cooking them into delicious stew. And that, to me, sounds a lot worse than putting children in bags and beating them with sticks. Terry Gunnell, who is the head of folkloristics department at the University of Iceland, says, you don't mess with Gryla. She rules the roost up in the mountains. Tales of the Ogress began as oral accounts with the earliest written references found in the 13th century in historic sagas and poems throughout the regions. One reads, here comes Gryla down the field with her 15 tails on. Like, does she have 15 tails? Why does she have 15 tails? No one explains. Down comes Gryla from the outer fields. This time, she's got 40 tails, a bag on her back, a sword slash knife in her hand, coming to carve out the stomachs of children who cry for meat during Lent. Yeesh. In Iceland, the midwinter holiday known as Yule, which is a version of the Old English and Old Germanic word Yule, which describes this time of gathering together, feasting and celebrating. It's essentially the same thing as Christmas in the United States, Hanukkah. Uh, It evolved into modern Christmas makes sense, right? It's generally darker than in the United States, and not just because, you know, the sun barely comes out that time of year. According to Gunnell, the earliest celebrations of the seasons, or of that season, were viewed as a time not only to bring together relatives, both living and deceased, but also elves, trolls, and other magical slash spooky creatures believed to inhabit the landscape. Sometimes these figures would visit in person as masked figures, going around to farms and houses during the holiday season. And this has given off kind of a Halloween vibe to me. Gryla, again, whose name loosely translates to growler, pretty metal, right? Would be among these showing up with a horned tail and a bag into which she would toss the naughty children. She was definitely around in about 1300, although she was not directly associated with Christmas. She was associated with a threat that lives in the mountains. You never knew exactly where she was. Long poems were written about Gryla and a husband, but he did not last long, as apparently she ate one of her husbands when she got bored with him. So in some ways, she was the first feminist in Iceland or, you know, a human praying mantis biting off the head of her mate. Other bits of folklore describe a second troll-like husband and a giant man-eating Yule cat We've covered him before on my show in last year's Christmas cryptids, traditions, and lore episode. The Yule Cat was known to target anyone who didn't have on new clothes around the holiday, which, you know, we find it boring to get a pair of socks, but there it's awesome because you're not going to get eaten by the Yule Cat. Filling out what Gunnell calls this highly dysfunctional family are Gryla's mob of large adult sons known as the 13 Yule Lads. Each of these troublemakers visits Icelandic households on different days throughout December, and they unleash their own kind of hell. Um, I'm going to butcher these names. I apologize in advance. Hurdaskiller is partial to slamming doors. Potaskeffel eats any leftovers from pots and pans. That's rude. And I don't know how to say this. Bungakavir lives up to his nickname of Sausage Swiper. I apologize. I looked up how to pronounce these, but they are never right. And also, they're very difficult to say. 
Gryla did not get connected to Christmas until around the early 19th century when poems began to associate her with the holiday. It was also around this time that the Yule Lads and the Yule Cat, which had been standalone Christmas figures with no connection to the Christmas Witch, then were integrated into her big creepy family. Prior to that, she was really just a personification of the winter and the darkness and the snow getting closer and taking over the land again. Not only did she represent the threat of winter, she was actually seen as controlling the landscape. Historians explain that Icelandic people understood themselves to be like more like a tenant of their harsh environment, you know, where glaciers, volcanoes and earthquakes are dominant and viewed mythical creatures like Gryla as the ones who were really running the show. Yeah, that's a lot of power, right? And still today, children are apparently terrified of Gryla in Iceland. The historian that I just talked about, he said that he's visited children's play schools to demonstrate drawing skills. And if he draws Gryla, then two or three terrified children have to leave the room because it's just too strong for them. That it's apparently a living folklore there. And she's really never stopped being embraced as a living figure. You apparently see her all around Reykjavik. She's just never really gone away, which I think is pretty cool. You know, Europeans love a good Christmas witch. There are many. I don't know if any more will appear on this list. You'll just have to give it a listen. I love a good Christmas witch, too. And while Krampus is king of the holiday scarers, old Gryla is the queen. All hail Queen Gryla. Welcome, my friend, to a dark holiday story. My name is Keely. I am the host of a true crime and paranormal podcast here on the Darkcast Network called Misty Mysteries. And the story I'm bringing you today involves the murder of a family on Christmas Day. Going back two weeks before Christmas of 1929, a 41-year-old tobacco farmer in Germington, North Carolina, named Charles Lawson, took his 37-year-old wife, Franny, and seven children, 17-year-old Marie, 16-year-old Arthur, 12-year-old Carrie, 7-year-old Maybell, 4-year-old James, 2-year-old Raymond, and 4-month-old Mary Lou into a town 13 miles away for a Christmas surprise. This surprise was a shopping spree for fancy clothes before the family went to a photo studio to take a family picture. The surprise was surprising to not only his family but the community. The Lawson family weren't struggling, but they were not well off. Most families at this time, living off of what the Lawsons did, never got to have pictures taken due to how expensive it could be, especially after buying all new clothes for such a large family. The Christmas surprise seemed very unusual to many people, especially for those learning about this case today, knowing that on Christmas Day, Charles did the unthinkable to his family. December 25th, 1929 started off with Marie waking up early. She needed to get started on her two-layer cake. She was baking and icing for the family's festivities. While Marie baked, Arthur was sent to town to go get shotgun shells for their family's traditional Christmas rabbit hunt. And the two middle girls, Carrie and Maybelle, were on their way to visit their aunt and uncle's farm. Carrie and Mabel would sadly never make it to their aunt and uncle's farm that day. The two girls were the first to fall victim to Charles' senseless attack on his family. Charles hid behind their tobacco barn, waiting for Carrie and Mabel to walk close enough to him. When the girls finally got close enough, Charles shot the two middle girls. He then bludgeoned the girls to ensure that they had died and placed them inside of the barn. He then headed to the family's home where his wife Franny was sitting on the porch. Charles shot Franny, 
killing her before moving inside the house to shoot Marie, who was screaming after seeing what her father had done. Inside the house, he took the life of Marie, just like he had his wife and his younger daughters. He then found James and Raymond, who Marie had instructed to run and hide from their father, shooting the boys and taking the lives of his two sons. Charles showed no mercy for any of his family because he then went to baby Mary Lou where he took her life by physically attacking her and fracturing her skull. After butchering his family, Charles laid them all down in the home with pillows under each of their heads and their arms crossed over their chest. Charles took to the nearby woods after this, pacing in a circle around a tree, while Arthur returned home to see what had happened to his family. Help came to aid Arthur, and so did an unwanted crowd. Hours after the discovery of the family's massacre, one single gunshot rang from the woods near the home. Arthur and the police officers followed the gunshot to find that Charles had taken his own life with a suicide note by his feet. The suicide note offered no explanation to why he did what he did. There has been theories blaming a head injury Charles sustained months before this, and the possibility that Charles got his own daughter, Marie, pregnant, but ultimately, we do not know why he did this. In the end of it, 16-year-old Arthur was the only survivor of his father's senseless crimes. He had to bury his family while friends, neighbors, and strangers made a tourist attraction out of his home. Everything in the home was left as it was. People would just walk through the house to see the blood of the Lawson family on the floor of their home, and the blood-soaked pillows that Charles put under his family's head. Some even took raisins off of Marie's Christmas cake as souvenirs. This cake had to be covered with glass to preserve it while it acted as a tourist attraction. This was an awful event in history that brought out some of the worst in the community. The Lawson family Christmas massacre has truly left a stain in the history and on the holiday. Hello and happy holidays from Sinister Story Hour. My name is Steph, and I'm so glad you're joining me, along with all my other partners at the Darkcast Network, in this holiday celebration of Naughty and Nice. We all sincerely thank you for your support in 2022. The holiday season is a time of year that's rich in traditions, from food to rituals and even the decorations that we've grown accustomed to using. One thing that always comes to mind for me is how these customs began and what their origins are. One popular tradition in Guatemala has always piqued my interest just because it's so different from our customs here in the U.S. In a tradition dating as early as the 18th century, residents of Guatemala, especially Antigua Guatemala, the country's former capital, gather in different areas and perform a ceremony to purify their homes and ward off evil spirits. Fire has long been believed to have purifying qualities, with various cultures performing fire ceremonies or smoke smudging to cleanse and transform. That concept is no different here in Guatemala, where fire is believed to clear out negative energies gathered throughout the year. It's believed to be the direct cleaning of the heart in the anticipation for Jesus. The ritual I'm speaking of is called La Quema del Diablo, or the Burning of the Devil. It's the way for all Guatemalans to banish negativity and unclean spirits and usher in the Christmas season. It is believed that negative energies or unclean spirits can gather in our dwellings and cities, 
building up and leading to bad luck or negative experiences. By burning the effigy of the devil, they are ridding the space of the negative energy and can begin the following year with a clean heart and spiritually cleansed environment. I also believe that there's an element of symbolism to this as well, as they are putting faith in this process that they will start anew from the ashes of the past year's failures. There's also a religious component to this ceremony as they are preparing to celebrate the Virgin in the coming days. Although the preparations for the burning of the devil can begin days in advance, it is at precisely 6 p.m. on December 7th of every year that you will find Guatemalans gathering for the ceremonies. It can look very different from some families celebrating the occasion among themselves at home, while others gather in the streets or local parks where thousands of people congregate to watch the ritual being performed. Some families will use tires or trash for the material they are burning, while in other areas they use a plastic suit, filling it with straw and trash. There are some that also use figures that are said to be malevolent and diabolical, and they throw them into the fire. One common element is that in most of these bonfires, they will use firecrackers inside of the trash, and it lights up the sky as they shoot out from the inferno. In the 1990s, this ceremony began to take on a different feel, as it gives people of Guatemala even more the reason to gather and celebrate. It has since evolved into the use of devil-like figures, taking on much of the shape and characteristics of that of a human. Of course, they pull out all the stops in this elaborate depiction, where some of these figures range anywhere from life-size to three stories tall. Others are small papier-mâché versions, all depicting the devil, and many of them with the number seven. I couldn't find the exact significance for the seven, other than it being December 7th when they celebrate, but also it came to my mind that seven is the number often associated with God. It's also no surprise that over time the process has become more commercialized. There are hundreds of street vendors that sell piñatas in the shape of a devil. They come in all sizes and styles, and you'd be amazed at seeing how many are sold in the days leading up to the celebration. There are also street vendors that pass by to sell souvenirs, including devil horn headbands that light up, and many of the children will don those during the party. As is custom in most Latin regions, the festivities also include some delicious food. There are stands where traditional food can be available for patrons and participants in the events. Some of the foods that are popular are buñuelos, tortas, and a spiced eggnog called rompope. I should also add that this celebration is not without controversy. Just the environmental aspect alone has become a reason for objection. Where before it was mostly paper that was being burned, now some residents have begun to burn trash, including plastic and rubber, and some even furniture items, causing even more air pollution in these large bonfires. La Quema del Diablo has always been held on December 7th, the eve of another huge celebration for the Guatemalans. December 8th is the day they observe the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, where the Virgin Mary is celebrated. 
although there has been some controversy involving this custom. It remains significant for the country of Guatemala, and they are said to strive to maintain a devil-free and harmonious nation. Thank you so much for joining me. I love to learn of other cultures and customs, so if you've experienced La Quema del Diablo, I would love to hear about it. Once more, happy holidays from Sinister Story Hour and the Darkcast Network. Hello, my name is Jasmine Castillo, and I am the podcaster and the voice behind Hands Off My Podcast, a true crime podcast for the lost voices of family, friends, from the people of color community. They have the stories of their loved ones that are missing, murdered, human trafficked, as well as trauma survivors that share their stories of their lost loved ones. Mexican folklore is filled with twisted tales of wild beasts, often served up with a pinch of Aztec mythology weaved in. As with many other cautionary folk tales and legends, some grandparents and parents tell the lechuza tale to children to keep them safe and in the house at night. La Mujer Lechuza, or the Owl Witch, is favored in Hispanic folklore. The stories tell of the witch, who can transform into a large bird after dark, commonly taking the form of an owl. For decades, sightings of these human-sized owls have been reported throughout Mexico and southern Texas. The origins of the lore of La Chusa started centuries ago, and it is rooted in Mexican and Tejano folklore. Some believe that La Chusas are women who were murdered by their lovers and lived to seek revenge on those who wronged them. La Chusa is thought to control the souls of men and bring them to their deaths. Though it is true, intentions are often unclear because she makes deals with both good and evil people. The Lechuza is not necessarily malevolent. She merely does what she must do to survive. Though she usually takes an interest in activities that are dangerous or forbidden by others. It is said that the Lechuza does not usually allow herself to turn into an animal unless fit for money. Because she would otherwise lose her powers. Also, if the head of the Lechuza changes, so does her power and strength. The worst part about it is that there isn't just one Lechuza, but rather an entire cabal of women who have the ability to shapeshift into owls. There's a chance that they can hunt in packs. So basically, Lechuza is a huge owl lady who kills bad children or drunkard men. A story that captures a little bit about the tales of the Lechuza and its sightings. One night in San Antonio, Texas, Three women were driving back from the marketplace. As they merged into Highway 191, they saw a large owl swooping towards the side of the car. They tried to keep their distance, but it chased them upwards to 70 miles per hour. At this point, the car suddenly died, but they managed to pull over to the side of the road before it stopped completely. The owl was nowhere to be seen. After a few tries, they got the car started again. Once the headlights came on, they illuminated a large human-sized owl sitting on a telephone pole. It watched them intensely. Frightened, they quickly drove away. After arriving home, the driver told her husband about the incident. Well, it must be the lechuza, he said. La lechuza is a Spanish phrase meaning the owl. Maybe this doesn't sound frightening so far, but la lechuza is no ordinary owl. 
No, she is a shape-shifting old woman who becomes a giant owl with 15 feet wingspan in the face of a woman. And to up the Annie's in creepy factor, the woman is Bruja, or witch, with revenge on her mind. You see, she was a curandera, a healer, practicing white magic. But people in her village were frightened of her powers and killed her. Resurrected, possibly by selling her soul to the devil, La Lechuza returned with revenge as her main objective. Now she shifts into a huge owl, lures passerbys to her hiding spot with innocent sounds such as a crying baby, and consumes the curious as her next meal. Her favorite victims, it is claimed, are intoxicated men. Throughout folklore, large flying creatures appear often. Stories like the Mothman of Point Pleasant and the Birdman are described in Native American myth. Both have similar characteristics, and witnesses' reports are in the thousands. These kinds of creatures are eerily common. On the American side of the border, there are many indigenous communities who have similar legends of gigantic birds collectively classified as thunderbirds. These huge nocturnal birds are in the oral histories of the peoples of the Southwest and the Pacific Northwest and can be found among the Algonquin, the Ojibwe, and Winnebago. According to people who have claimed to see the Lalachusa in real life, these witches have the ability to drain a car's battery in order to render persons helpless on the road. One of the stranger aspects of the Lechuza legend is that her strange tie-in with storms. Mystics believe that their owl witches are capable of causing thunderstorms out of the blue. According to Tejano's tales, if you notice strange thunderstorm pattern in your area, a Lechuza might be linked to it. No one knows why stormy weather is so deeply tied to these witches and why it's linked to birds. One of the more positive rumors about La Lechuza deals with the people she chooses to attack. According to this rumor, La Lechuza only attack people who have done evil things to women or have evil in their hearts. If you see a Lechuza and she doesn't attack you, it means that she's there to warn you of tragedy. Even so, the vast majority of people who have close run-ins with Lechuza never seem to live long after. Her trademark noise isn't a hawk-like screech or an owl-like hoot. Most often, the whistles occur in batches of three. She might even whistle or screech annoyingly outside your window until you're so irritated that you open your window and will pounce on you and scratch your eyes out. Some believe that it is a way that these witches communicate to one another. Others say it's a noise that they make when they are about to start hunting. Considering how unsettling Lelechuza looks, most people would run as soon as they see owl woman nearby. That's why they tend to be crafty when it comes to finding their prey. To lure people into traps, Lelechuza hide up in the treetops and start to mimic sounds of an innocent creature in need of help. Sometimes when they hunt, they will sound like a baby crying. Other times it will sound like a kitten stuck in a tree or a puppy barking. People who are foolish enough to venture into the woods after hearing those sounds are never seen alive again. If you believe the rumors to be true, there are ways to ward off these creatures. If you shoot at it and it doesn't die, you die instead. If any part of Lechuza touches you, even a feather from its wingtip, 
you will die. If you dream about the creature, that means someone in your family will die. In many stories, the lechuza has been killed, but when the sun comes up in the body of the bird, transforms back into the body of a haggard witch, there are several things you can do to ward off an attack of the creature. Hanging a rope with seven knots in an outside your front door or on your porch shows the creature that you acknowledge and respect it and will leave you alone. Or, if you see the creature flying at you, an attack can be repelled with a combination of salt and chili powder thrown into the lechuza's face. Line your home with salt. For some reasons unknown to us, salt is universally viewed as a material capable of warding off evil. Unsurprisingly, lechuzas can't stand salt. Placing some nearby will prevent them from lurking near your home. If salt and chili powder are not handy, you can always recite the Magnificent in Spanish, La Magnifica, a Catholic prayer taken from the Gospel of St. Luke where the Virgin Mary is praising the power of God. It is also called the Canticle of Mary, and it celebrates the visitation, the second joyful mystery of the Holy Rosary. The prayer must be recited in the normal manner and backwards. Well, I'm not sure if this would work. How much time would there be to say this prayer forward and backwards if a massive bird came out of the sky and was swooping down on you? In any event, it made the list of possible to choose a repellents. One of my favorites is curse at it. You think that monster wouldn't care about foul language, but you'd be wrong. Apparently, cursing at La Lechuza will make her go away. Now, don't bother with traditional whippery. The very same magic that makes La Lechuza shapeshift also makes her impervious to traditional weapons like knives and guns. Avoid eye contact. It believed that the direct eye contact with Lechuza can give them the ability to steal your soul or shapeshift into you. Now, could these legends of the Lechuza exist because they are describing an actual animal? If so, is there physical evidence of this animal existence? As the people of the border say, Las Lechuza por regular no son peligrosas. What does this mean? That the owl is not dangerous. Normally. Felices vacaciones. Hi, this is Kelly. And this is Jenna. And you're listening to ODFM. This episode is One Deck the Halls from Murder. And we're doing this with the dark cast out, Kirk. Yeah. Guess what? I'm taking you to Florida. Because mm. when aren't we in Florida? The best stories they all are in Florida. From Florida. Let's go to right. Florida. I'm ready. And this is a very Florida story. This is Homestead, Florida. It's just outside of Miami, just to oh. give you a location. Okay. It was the morning of December 25th, 1979. 49-year-old Butch Waskowitz, I think is how you say it. Okay. Butch is driving his wife and kids from his house to his parents' house to spend Christmas Day. They lived in the same neighborhood. They were only three, like about three streets away from each other. Oh, so nice and convenient. That's handy. You know, yeah, nice and I like it. About halfway there, he sees what looks suspiciously like a body on the side of the road. Oh, Jesus. Uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, I found a present. He pulls over to investigate and is horrified to discover oh, no. that the body is his mother his own mom his own mom 71 year old gertrude wasco with gertrude. gertrude so he sends one of his teenage sons to go start knocking on doors to call 911 right yeah oh uh, yeah before cell phones when, 
Yeah, right. This is pre-cell phones. Absolutely. But he probably had to knock on a couple doors because it's like Christmas Day. Like people, yeah, people are people home, even home? You know. So when police do arrive, they instantly assume Gertrude was the victim of a hit and run. But there were no, the typical, the things you would see, there were no tire marks or other telltale evidence you would normally see of a hit and run. But, you know. And she didn't look like she was shot or. No. mm -mm, Nope. Oh, God. But several feet away in some dirt on a lawn, there were like these three inch wide marks in the lawn, possibly dirt bike. Still really weird. sense. You know, plus it was on the lawn. So it was like, yeah. well, someone would be in the street. Like I, I don't like, know. like they so, had an accident and somehow it, knocked her it over. Was or something. Very, very strange. Yeah. Um, so the first thing investigators do is of course, interview the family the night before on Christmas Eve, the, I'm going to try this again. Yeah. Waskowitz family <laughs> had gathered at the home of Butch and his wife, Patsy around 9 45 PM. Gertrude and her husband, who was 74 year old Elmo, They had gotten into an argument, which was very typical for them. They'd been married like 50 some years and they bickered and all this. Oh, yes. So she wanted to get home because everyone was coming to their house for Christmas Day and she had food to prep. And and yes, you want to clean and get everything. Right. Uh, That's stressful. He's still like playing cards, smoking cigars. He wasn't uh, ready that's to leave, so right? I know that feeling. Right. <laughs> right? Like, so everyone had been drinking a lot of eggnog. There was mm, people yeah. were tipsy mm-hmm. and stuff. So Gertrude decided, fine, I'm gonna walk the three blocks home. Oh, Gertie, not alone. Butch and Patsy were like, don't think that's a good idea. You've also been drinking and all this, oh. but she was a very stubborn lady. Okay. <laughs> one of them that you didn't want to mess with. So no one wants to mess with her when she's angry. <laughs> it was Florida. So it, it wasn't cold out. They don't get snow there. It was a safe neighborhood. It was the seventies. People walked places. That's true. People, people hitched, hitched, hitched and all that everywhere. Yeah, I, exactly. So it wasn't like completely strange for her to do that. And it was three blocks away. Yeah. She's, a, she was a very capable woman. So everyone's um, like, okay, Elmo wasn't going. Elmo. <laughs> Elmo wasn't moving. So when investigators went to speak to her husband, Elmo, they were immediately suspicious. Uh oh. He didn't seem concerned about his wife at all. No oh. reaction being to being told she was dead. Hmm. They asked why he hadn't reported her missing when he came home that night. She was supposed to walk. Yeah. And then he came home and he and you wouldn't think she's gonna go out anywhere else. She'd been drinking and right. Stuff. She'd been <gasps> drinking. She was walking home, right? Oh Mo, what'd you do? He said he got home after midnight. All the lights were off in the house. He assumed that she had finished her preparations and had gone to bed. So they're like, Well, wouldn't you have seen her in the bed? And he was like, Well, sometimes he slept in the spare room because she uh, complained about how he snored when he drank, which uh, legit. Yeah. Snore more makes when sense. they drink. So then they were like, okay, well, why didn't you report her missing in the morning then? And he said, "Uh, just wasn't aware that it was already late enough that guests would be starting to arrive. Like he's just like in his own little la la land. He's He's probably used to her doing everything for him. Right. And they're like, well, she didn't get up or anything. And he was like, well, lately Gertrude hadn't been taking her medication as regularly as she Uh was supposed to on some days. And so it caused her to sometimes sleep really late. Yeah, because she wouldn't remember till later in the day. And sometimes they made her tired and then she oh, went to bed sh- late. Or, I mean, he had all these answers, but it still was like mm, a little weird. Yeah, it's weird. He never checked in or. Yeah, he's like, oh, it's quiet. I'm going to enjoy my time. He wasn't <laughs> going to complain. 
Oh, I should note also that when police did arrive at Elmo and Gertrude's home, they had uh, surprised Elmo while he was kicked back in his favorite chair watching football. Not a care in the world. Uh, That sounds like what happens at my house on Sundays. Right. We're like, oh, the house isn't being prepared. I wasn't even aware. I'm watching the game. Yeah, because he doesn't help. When the autopsy was finished, it was determined that the cause of death was not likely a hit and run. Whoa. Gertrude had multiple contusions and lacerations up and down her back, as well as one on her forehead. Like somebody beat it out of her somehow? I don't know how you get it on your head and then your back. Or maybe like got hit from the back and then you hit your head Oh, when you hit the ground. Yep. I didn't think about that one. Okay, oh, yeah, God. that could be it too, right? Cause of death was listed as blunt force trauma by an unknown object, approximately two and three quarters inches wide, oblong, with kind of like two curved teardrop shapes next to each other. Very weird. Like not something, right? Yeah. I was first thinking you were going to say like a um, two by four or something like that. Right. Baseball bat. Like, yeah, this is weird, right? The coroner who had grown up in Canada was an avid hunter and noted that the marks on her back looked suspiciously like deer prints. Does this sound familiar to you at Oh, wait, what? This sounds like. Yeah. It sounds like that song. Yeah. Grandma got run over by a reindeer walking home from our house. Oh, my God. Gotcha. 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 (laughs) So grandma really did get run over by a reindeer. Grandma really did get run over by a reindeer. Although in Florida, all of the details of that story are completely made up by me. (laughs) Based on the lyrics of the song. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, happy holidays from Kelly and Jenna from ODFM. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. So if you want to hear more true crime stories tied real in with ones. Our, Yeah, real, real ones. ones. <laughs> you know, we, we tie our stories in with a lot of our own special brand of dark humor. Yep. And you can find us on your favorite podcast platform. We release new episodes every Monday. Yeah. Happy holidays from us and the Dark Cast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Regina King and sitting... All the way in Portland is my ever-beautiful partner. Hi, I'm Lynn, the docent of darkness. And we are Disturbing Interest. We are a Terrible Mysteries, Horrible Histories podcast out of Seattle. And we are part of the Darkcast Network. This is our Christmas crossover. And I am just going to, I'm just going to apologize right now for what's about to happen. Lynn, what are we telling these fine people about? So, Noswetha, or good evening in Welsh. We're going to talk about the magically weird tradition of the Merry Lude of Wales. So, like Germany and Austria, they have Krampus, right? The terrifying Krampus parades. Sweden has the Gavla goat that is the target of, like, arsonists across the land seeking to burn this giant straw goat. One of my favorite Christmas traditions there. Yeah, anytime like you can do massive mayhem and destruction, I'm here for that holiday. But I feel like whales, whales looked at the landscape of weird holiday craft and they were like, hold my harp. So like Wales, the birthplace of my great, great grandfather, Willem Harris, has an extra super delightful tradition that marries both like creepy spookiness with bardic tomfoolery. 
Ooh. To create legendary song battles between innocent Welsh householders just trying to eat their, like, cheese and crackers and beer in peace of a winter's evening. Okay. Yeah. This sounds like some straight-up D&D nonsense happening right here. I I know this part. This is, yeah, this is so weird. I'm here for it. So basically, you know, just trying to hang out, trying to have their snacks. And this giant spectral horse skull on a pole wrapped in a bed sheet and decorated with like festive holiday tinsel and baubles comes by and is like, knock, knock. And that's, yeah, it's next level bizarre. And I think we are both 100% here for it. So let us dive into what the actual holy heck is going on in Kimri, which is the Welsh name for Wales, when it gets to the darkest, coldest part of the year. So this tradition is in the same vein as wassailing, which is a very old custom in the British Isles of going door to door to visit your neighbors, singing and offering an exchange of gifts for a drink of cider or spiced ale from the wassail bowl. So the origins of the song, here we go, a wassailing. Yep. Uh-huh. so green. Yep. Here we go. Wondering. Yep, exactly. It's from this, this kind of wassail tradition. And like back in the day, it would happen around Twelfth Night which was like the 12th day of Christmas, which is what, 12 golden birds, lords leaping, something like that. I don't know. All I know is there was a mess. Yeah, you should not give people that many birds. Like, don't, please don't. Don't give me that. No, not even for Hanukkah. Like, I'll even take eight days of underpants before I will take 12 days of random birds. I don't care if you put down a plastic cloth before giving me said bird. That many geese, that's a lot of hissing. The geese are mean. Geese are very mean. So this normally, like, this kind of wassail thing would usually happen in early January. And now that tradition has been replaced in modern times by caroling, which also takes place also earlier in the kind of 12 days of Christmas cycle, usually before and right around Christmas itself. So, like, instead of, I don't know, hits from the communal ale bong and rowdy drunken song fests, you get all the Dickens carolers showing up at your door singing Little Drummer Boy. That's kind of the tradition that we're coming out of. But Wales, Wales was like, you know what? Let's get real weird with this. So the earliest instance of this tradition of the Mary Lude was recorded of happening right around like 1800. And it was kind of a going concern really very much around the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And the tradition kind of died out for a while, uh, probably because of some really uptight Christian citizens getting kind of salty about the weird pagan undertones of this bizarre ritual. But it has made a resurgence in the later half of the 20th century, and it is going strong today. So basically what happens is that a group of, at least in the past, it was mostly men, though today anybody can do it. They would dress up with all kinds of like baubles and ribbons and rosettes and stuff on their clothes and form a little wassail posse, a wassy, if you will, with a couple of them dressed up as Punch and Judy, and then a ringleader and a merry man who is usually um, someone with like a drum or some other musical instrument that would make the music happen. And then, of course, there would be someone dressed as the Mary Lude herself. I can really see this happening at Renaissance fairs. Uh, in oh, fact, I'm pretty yes. sure I was part of one of these at a Renaissance fair. 
Totally. So basically what the Mary Lude is, is a horse skull, like an actual skull from a deceased pony, or you can make it out of paper mache if you don't just, I don't know, have a horse skull lying around like you do. And it would be mounted on this tall wooden pole. And then a white cloth, like a sheet would be draped beneath it that would kind of cloak and hide the person that was holding the pole. You know? Yes. I always find myself asking questions about logistics in our stories. Like that's the one thing that gets me more than anything out of history is the logistics behind it. Well, you know, it's good upper body strength. You have to kind of be fit yeah. to Mary Lude, I guess. Maybe, yeah. oh my God, forget like jazzer size, looter size, you know, really good for the upper body, just you and that pole. You don't need a shake weight. You just need a horse skull on a stick. You're good to go. That's the origin word for glute, loot. Yes. Mary, Mary glute. There you go. So good for your core too. So the skull itself might also be a little bit decorated. It might have glass baubles inserted in the eye sockets, which that's not horrifying at all. Uh, And then ribbons and tinsel and bells and bows and things like that would be deck the whole situation. Like it's a well-dressed Mary Lou. It's essentially, this is the greatest Welsh black metal arts and crafts project ever. So the Wasi, please let me like Wasi happen, the Wasail Posse, they would show up at your door, they would knock, ring the bell, whatnot, and then they would initiate a call and response exchange of song verses. So what happens is that first the Mary Lude party would request entry and householders would sing back with an excuse of why they're, you're not coming in. No, no, we don't want you in here. And then the Mary Lude would respond with another request to enter and a reason that they should totally let them in. It's going to be great. It's going to be fun. And then the household would reply with another verse about why that is not happening. No, no, no. Like, oh, can't. Sorry, I'm washing my hair. Something like that. So basically, it just, you know, they go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until eventually the household just runs out of excuses and they would let the Mary Lude and company in and mildly mayhem-filled jolliness would result. Jollility if you will, would result and everybody would eat ale and cakes and whatnot and just kind of have a little bit of a party. And then at the end of it, probably really it isn't the worst outcome that you could hope for upon allowing a giant disembodied spectral horse head and its entourage into your home of a, of a winter's evening. Yeah, that's kind of the basics of how the Mary Lude operates. And I thought, you know, I thought to myself, self, I said, It might be both fun and educational for the listeners here to hear an example of what a modern day Mary Lude experience here in America could be like. Are are you up for it? You up for a little role play? You know, I already signed up for this. And the only thing that's educational about this, ladies and gentlemen, is learning why I question my life choices sometimes. Oh, this is going to be so much fun. Okay, so I'm going to be the Mary Lude, and you, Regina, you can be an innocent Welsh citizen just minding your own business, chilling out in your little Snowdonian cottage on a wintry night. I've always wanted to be an innocent. There you go. You're an innocent. You just, you had your cheese, your crackers, your delicious warm spiced ale. Just, you're having a nice night in. And then, knock, knock. Who's there? It's me, the Mary Lude. Michael, let me in. Sorry, wrong reference, wrong reference. I had to get that in there, though. I mean, hey, yay, it's just me, your friendly neighborhood horse skull on a pole. I was about you let me in. We have some snacks, a little wassail. It'll be great. It'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I like my snacks. You're on a pole. It's kind of awkward. 
okay, well, how about this? What if, what if I, what if I sang a little? No. What if I rapped a little? Yeah. How can you say no to a horse skull rapping? You can't. You just can't. You can't. You can't. Now, here's a little story I've got to tell about a Welsh horse skull that you know so well. It started way back in history with Judy and Punch and the man Mary. I had a little horse named Mary Lude, just me and my horsey and Punch and Jude. Riding across the land, kicking up sand, Santa's posse's on my tail cause I'm in demand. One lone Mary I be, all by myself without nobody. The snow is falling down on my equine skull, the air is getting cold, the beer is getting chill. Looking for a snack, I ran into a girl. My name is Regina King. I said, howdy. He said, hi. I told a little story that sounded well rehearsed, four days on the run, and that he's dying of thirst. My brew was in my hand, and he was on my tip. His voice was hoarse. His throat was dry. He asked me for a sip. He said, can I get some? I said, you can't get none. Had a chance to flee, but here he comes, the Mary. Quick on the draw, I thought I'd be dead. He put his skull to my head, and this is what he said. Dear God. Did it! Now, my name is Mary Lude. I got a license to a sale. I think you know what time it is. It's time to get ill. Now, what do we have here? A Welshman and his beer. I run this land. You understand I've made myself clear. We stepped into the wind with my scowl grin. You think the story's over, but it's ready to begin. Now, I got the rap. You got the brew. You got two choices of what you can do. It's not a tough decision. As you can see, I can wassail you away or you can ride with me. We did it. We did it. See, that's what it's like. I like to imagine back in, you know, 1900 in Wales, you just rapping two people with the horse skull on a pole, just rapping, rapping. The look of horror on my face at myself <laughs> is just sublime, truly. And with deep, deep, deep apologies to you, the Beastie Boys, and every person in Wales, that is our story of the Mary Lou. And to everyone who heard me in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, sorry. We don't usually rap. No. And at this point, we would say, you might be disturbed, but you're not alone. Alone. Hi, this is Nidia from The Crime Diner. We are a Jersey podcast, and we share a variety of true crime, cults, mysteries, historical hilarities, and sometimes victim stories, and we do this within a Dinner with Friends theme. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Paraphotod is coming to town. In the U.S., when a child is naughty, Santa will leave a lump of coal instead of a gift. But misbehaving children in northeastern France have a bigger urgency to behave. They know they have to be extra careful to mind their elders, because there, Santa takes on an extra helper. His name is Père Fatat, a.k.a. Father Whipper. While Santa is a jolly, happy soul, Père Fatat is a crooked, shaggy old man with an intimidating appearance. Good little ones get the usual gifts from St. Nicholas, but naughty tots get the whip at best, and at worst, they get taken away into the night, never to be seen again, except maybe in a stew. Père Fatard's backstory will scare any kid straight. Legend has it, it all began when Père Fatard, a butcher down on his luck in the hunting department, 
found three little boys lost in the forest and decided they would be the catch of the day. He hunts them down and chops them for meat to sell in his shop. When St. Nicholas stops by the butcher shop for meat, Père Fatad tries selling him the boy meat. Santa, being too smart to fall for it, brings the boys back to life and decides to hire Père Fautog as his sidekick during the holidays to punish naughty children or to scare them from being misbehaving in the first place. Hey, spooky friends. It's Angelina and Aurora from Murder Murder News, the true crime cult with all of the baby goats and none of the brainwashing. Grab yourself a cup of hot cocoa and pull up a seat by the crackling fire as we dive into a Christmas story of survival. It was Christmas of 1990, and 20-year-old Lene Tita and her 16-year-old sister Trish could not be more excited. Their family owned a pretty luxurious cabin in Webner Canyon near Oakley, Utah. The girls had loved traveling to the vacation spot from their home in Houston, Texas, since they were kids. The mountains, snow, horses, and peacefulness of the family getaway had caused their mom, 51-year-old Kay, to nickname it Tita's Tranquility. This year was especially exciting for the Titas because their whole family was getting together at the cabin for the holidays. Their grandmother, cousins, aunts, and uncles were all going to be there. 76-year-old Beth, who the girls lovingly referred to as Grams, had recently recovered from a car accident. She'd been slowing down in recent years, and it was really important to everyone to spend as much time with her as possible. Lene, Trish, and their family left Texas for Utah on December 21st. Kay and Beth got to work decking the halls for the holidays. The gifts were wrapped, the tree was lit, and the stockings were hung. The two women knew how to do Christmas. On December 22nd, the family went out to do a little last-minute Christmas shopping 40 minutes away in Salt Lake City. It was a brutal winter, and there was so much snow that the best option for getting from the house to the main road about four miles away was a snowmobile. Beth, Kay, and Lene went into town to get food for the family, while Trish and her dad, 51-year-old Rolf, went to Camas, Utah, to a snowmobile repair shop. Around 3.30 p.m., Lene arrived back at the cabin with her mom and Grams. The weather was frigid, and Lene couldn't feel her fingers. She rushed inside to warm up her hands under some warm water so she could help Beth and Kay carry in all the bags. As she headed up the stairs, she saw a flash of gray dart across the kitchen. If it was one of her cousins ducking behind a door to jump out and surprise her, she was ready for them. A moment later, a man with frizzy hair came out from around the refrigerator, gun cocked and pointed at Lene. This was not her cousin. The man told her to sit down and be quiet. Just then, another man with dark hair and thick glasses came down the hallway towards them. Pointing a gun at Lene, the man asked if anyone else was with her. She replied that her mom and Grams were outside, just as she heard them coming up the stairs to the front door. Kay pleaded with the man, asking what she could give them. She offered to get her purse and write them a check. As Lene looked around the room at the scene, she noticed the two men had already scavenged the cabin. They had opened their Christmas presents. They had gone through the kitchen and helped themselves to food. Two rifles sat resting against the couch. Without warning, the one with the frizzy hair shot Kay in the chest. Next, he shot Beth twice in the head. 
Lene watched as her mom and Grams died on the ground of their once tranquil cabin. Lene started to pray and was told by the frizzy-haired man it wouldn't help because he worshipped the devil. Meanwhile, Trish and Rolf were still in Camus at the snowmobile shop. Suddenly, a wave of terror washed over Trish. Something was wrong. She told her dad her fears. Maybe Grams had fallen off a snowmobile. They called the cabin, but there was no answer. Back at the cabin, the killers were angered by the phone ringing and took it off the hook. The next time Trish tried calling, the line was dead. Rolf and Trish rushed to get home to check on their family, worrying that Trish's bad feeling had been warranted. Lene pleaded for her captors to just leave, and she wouldn't tell anyone. They told her there was too much evidence to tie them to the scene. They had to burn the house down. They dragged the bodies of Kay and Beth out onto the patio and forced Lene to pack a bag of her belongings. Lene didn't know what the two assailants were planning to do to her, but she knew she needed to get out of the house fast or they would kill her dad and her sister. She packed as fast as she could, but Rolf and Trish had hustled back to the cabin, fearing something was wrong. As they pulled up to the house, a tall man in a ski mask jumped out with a gun. Trisha's first instinct was that this was one of her cousins playing a trick on her. The masked man escorted Trish and her dad into the garage and told Rolf to take off his snow clothes. The man with the frizzy hair ordered the man in the glasses to shoot Rolf. The man with the glasses froze, seemingly in fear, so the man with the frizzy hair shot Rolf in the head himself. They poured gasoline on Rolf and around the garage. Then the men poured gas around the rest of the cabin before setting it alight. The two men forced Lene and Trish to drive the two snowmobiles while they rode on the backs. That's when Trish's survival instinct kicked in. Her mom, dad, and Grams had all been murdered. She was going to save Lene, and she was going to save herself. She began plotting. She had a fair bit of experience driving a snowmobile, and she believed she could get enough speed coming around a corner to throw one of the men off the back, perhaps even into a tree. But what would her next move be? She worried the man with glasses wouldn't hesitate to shoot her sister as she drove the other snowmobile. Along the road, the girls spotted their uncle Randy, who had stopped on the shoulder. He wondered who the men were riding along with his nieces. Had they brought boyfriends to the cabin this year? To his surprise, the snowmobile zipped past him without waving or even slowing down. Trish and Lene had seen their uncle, but didn't want to risk Randy's life by acknowledging him. They made the decision to leave their uncle and deal with their captors alone. Lene, Trish, and the two men made it back to the place where the family car had been parked. The men forced them into the back seat at knife point. They drove past Uncle Randy once again, and again he noticed the girls in the car with the two strangers. He motioned for them to stop. Trish tried to give Randy a look to let him know something wasn't right without alerting the kidnappers. Randy felt like something was amiss, but not knowing the girls were being held at knife point, he decided just to continue down the road towards the house. And then he spotted something even stranger. A man was riding down the canyon on a snowmobile in just jeans and a shirt in the freezing cold. The man was also covered in blood. It was Rolf. Rolf had managed to get up, even with his gunshot wound to the head. But as he moved from the garage back into the house, he caught on fire. 
He managed to put out the fire in the shower, but after discovering the bodies of his wife and mother-in-law, he knew he had to go save his daughters. He managed to get on a snowmobile and head towards the main road. That's when he ran into Randy, who could not believe what he was seeing. Rolf told him what had happened, and Randy helped him into the backseat of his vehicle. Randy had a cell phone, but there was no cell service in the canyon in 1990. He raced towards the main road, trying repeatedly to call 911. No reception. Miles down the canyon, Randy caught up to his nieces in the car. He didn't know what to do. He didn't want to alarm the killers, fearing they would shoot Lene and Trish. Could he somehow run them off the road without endangering the girls? Suddenly, the call went through and Randy connected to a 911 operator. He told them his nieces had been kidnapped and where the car was heading. Just as he requested an air transport for Rolf, the call dropped. He soon made it to a gas station in Oakley and called again. At this point, Lene and Trish were still in the car with their captors, who had made it to the main road and were heading towards Camus. A police car approached from behind, then drove on past. Soon, a second police car passed, then turned around to pursue them with their lights flashing. A 90-mile-an-hour pursuit began, but the killers lost control of the car. They drove off the road into an embankment. Fortunately, the girls were okay. A helicopter arrived for Rolf, who ultimately survived his gunshot wound. The killers, eventually identified as 25-year-old Vaughn Lester Taylor, the one with the frizzy hair, and 21-year-old Edward Stephen Daly, the one with the glasses, were each charged with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted first-degree murder, and two counts of aggravated kidnapping. They were also charged with aggravated assault, theft, arson, and failure to heed to a police signal to stop. Lene, Trish, and Rolf all testified against Vaughn and Edward in the trial. In May of 1991, Vaughn pleaded guilty and was sentenced to death. Edward was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison, where he still is today, and it's unlikely he will ever be paroled. Vaughn remains on death row while working to appeal his sentence. Rolf, ever the hero, rebuilt the cabin after the fire. For the family, it was better than ever and still remains a place of healing and tranquility for Lene and Trish. Rolf recovered from his injuries but passed away in 2008 at the age of 69 from cancer with his family by his side. Lene married her childhood sweetheart Nathan, who she says changed her life. They now have a blended family with nine children between them. Trisha is a mother of two little girls. She said that when she looks into their eyes, she sees both her mother and her father. She says that the incident in 1990 doesn't define her, but has helped to make her who she is today. For more on Lene and Trisha's story, be sure to check out our sources, which were Surviving Evil and 48 Hours. We hope you enjoyed this story, and we hope you're all safe and sound around with the ones you love the most. If you find yourself with some time to kill this holiday season, check out Murder Murder News wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll help keep you company. New episodes come out every Friday, each one featuring a story from the corresponding week in true crime history told from a victim first standpoint. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. We hope you enjoyed part one of Darkcast Network holiday stories, The Naughty List. Tomorrow, we'll share part two of Darkcast Network holiday stories, The Nice List. 
which will be feel-good stories that you can share with your entire family.